Okay. <clears throat> so, if you've been here the last few weeks, you know we're going through a special study of baptism and uh, looking at different things about baptism, how it was preached, how we read about it in the scriptures. And we've been looking at some objections some have to the essentiality of baptism, to the uh, idea that baptism is required unto salvation, right? That we need to do it to be saved. So for the last few weeks, we talked about it in the teaching of the apostles. We looked through Acts. We saw how in pretty much every significant example of a conversion in the book of Acts, there was a baptism, and a baptism occurred immediately. It wasn't a week down the road or when it was convenient or on, on the special baptism Sunday. It happened right away. And then we read about it in the letters of Paul and the letters of Peter, right? How they preached it. How it was very important to them. And then we've looked at several objections to the essentiality of baptism. One being, of course, probably the most fa famous one or most often said is, was the thief on the cross, right? And how he was saved. Uh, and Jesus said, from this day forward, you will be in me in paradise. And how we talked about how that really did not, that really was not relevant to the issue of whether baptism is essential. We talked about when Jesus was resurrected and before he was to be ascended, he made the Great Commission, right? Going out into all the world, baptizing them, making them disciples of all nations. That happened after the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross was under the old law, just like David, just like Moses, Elijah, all these folks. So you could say the same thing really about anybody in the Old Testament. And then we talked about Cornelius and his household and how he received, they received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. But we read about, we, read, we looked in depth into that, and we read where Peter was told to go to them to speak words, or actually Cornelius was told to send someone for him who would speak words that they might be saved. In other words, they had to hear the gospel before they could be saved. And we read in Acts 11 where Peter's recounting that experience to the council in Jerusalem, and he says, as I began to speak, the Spirit fell on them. So we understand at that point that this was done more for Peter's sake and his traveling companions than it was for Cornelius. It's to show Peter, who still thought the gospel was only for the Jews after all these years, and it probably was years since Pentecost, that they needed to understand the gospel was truly for everyone. So this was done more for his sake than it was for Cornelius. And then we looked at 1 Corinthians where Paul says, I did not come to baptize, I came... I've been sent to preach the gospel, not to baptize. And how some will use that phrase to say, well, it must not be that important if Paul would say that. But then we looked at the context of the situation, how they had divisions, and they were divided according to who had baptized them. They were saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ. Or I am of, not, they were not saying they were of Christ, they were saying they were of whoever had baptized them. And Paul had to deal with that. And he's emphasizing the point it's not who's baptized you, it's Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that matters. And then we talked last week how some will say, well, baptism is a work and you're not saved by works, right? And we talked about how baptism is not a work of merit. It's not a work. Sure, it's, it's a thing done. And in that sense, you could call it a work, I guess. But who is doing the working? Is it the person being baptized? No. It's the work of God. And we talked about that even in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, who they will quote. If you look at verse 10, he said, this is a working of God. It's not a work of the person being baptized. They're simply obeying the gospel, obeying the command, succumbing to baptism, being immersed into his death, crucified with him 
and raised to newness of life. Interesting concepts, isn't it? And you can say scriptures like that, right? You can just say them out there, you know. It sounds, okay, I, I, well, yeah. But you've got to look at the context. You've got to get in. You've got to dig, right? Scripture says, seek, right? Seek, and you shall find. You can't take one scripture and say that's the gospel. Well, today, we're going to continue that thought a little bit about the work being done, right? And we're going to get into a very controversial subject, okay? We're going to talk about spirit baptism, the Holy Spirit baptism, right? And I know y'all just love to study about Holy Spirit baptism, right? Because you usually come out of it just as confused as you were before, right? So we're going to look at that a little bit today, though, and see what we can glean about Holy Spirit baptism. We're going to look at that because that is another objection we hear, right? Well, we're baptizing the Spirit. You know, water baptism is nothing. We're baptizing the Holy Spirit baptizes. That's when you're saved. All right, well, I'm going to go over and read Romans 6. So turn your Bibles over to Romans 6. I've read it many times. We're going to read it again today. All right, we're going to start Romans 6, verse 1. And I'll give you a second to get over there. <coughs> you should know it by now, but we'll read it again. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even, though, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, I want to read another verse here because I think this is pertinent. A lot of people don't, don't mention this when they're talking about Romans 6. And this, and this will apply to Holy Spirit baptism a little bit. But if you go on down to verse 15, and let's just read starting there. It says, What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace. Of course, he's having to deal with those who are saying, well, we're under grace, we can, we can sin, it's no big deal, right? He's having to deal with that. And he says, certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death, or of obedience leading to righteousness? And then notice what he says here. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now, what does that sentence mean exactly? He said, you obeyed. You obeyed from the heart, that form of doctrine. Well, in the context, we're talking about baptism, right? And if this is Holy Spirit baptism, just think about that for a second. How would you obey that form of doctrine? Just an interesting thought. Put that in your back pocket, and we'll come back to it in a little bit. Also, in Galatians 3.27, not going to read it, but just pastor says we are put into Christ through baptism, right? Well, you'll hear uh, many, you'll hear this at times, those that say the baptism that saves is a baptism in the Spirit at the point of faith. And they'll say, Romans 6 or Galatians 3 is talking about spirit baptism, not water baptism. And we don't, we don't necessarily have a reference to water, although it talks about being buried, right? And how are you buried alive? Well, in water, you're immersed, right? You could say you go under the water. So they're upholding this, these scriptures to point out there are many different types of baptisms in the Bible, and there are. We should not 
assume water baptism is always the subject under consideration, and, and that's true. There are many types of baptisms that are mentioned. I want to read something from your outline here, if you've got it. And this is a, a view of someone who is an opponent to, uh, to the idea that water baptism is essential. And I've heard this spouted out to me directly from people before, too. There is a way to distinguish between water baptism and spirit baptism in those scriptures which do not specifically tell which types being discussed. Okay? That way is this. If the passage is talking about being placed into Christ, then it is talking about spirit baptism, not water baptism. For spirit baptism is how we are placed into Christ. In Romans 6, for example, it is obvious that the context is being placed into Christ and the passage dwells on the believer's identification with Christ, with his death, with his resurrection. In other words, in this passage, the believer is not baptized in the water, but into the death of Christ. Of course, they are presuming that this very point is proven by saying that, right? How do you know? How do you know that? How do you know that just, just because it says, I'm baptized in Christ, means it's Holy Spirit baptism? How do you know that? I would go down to verse 17 and say they obeyed that form of doctrine, all right? To obey means... I had to act, do something. Something had to be done. Is Holy Spirit baptism something I have to do? Interesting thought. Keep that in your back pocket. All right. There are, as I mentioned, many baptisms described in the Bible. I'm going to read a couple of these. Some of these you know. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 10. And let's look at that for a minute. Get over there. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning of verse 1. He says, moreover, this is Paul, he says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Now he's obviously referring to the children of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness, right? Had the cloud, the fire by night. He's saying they were baptized into Moses as they came through the wilderness, Right? I guess you could kind of say that as they were saved through Moses, perhaps. Perhaps you might say that. Interesting concept. Don't fully understand what he's talking about there other than we just know the history, right? There's also the baptism of John, right? Let's turn over to Mark chapter 1. We should know this, but let's just read about it. Mark chapter 1, and let's just begin in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So we have a baptism of John, a baptism of water, a baptism of of repentance for remission of sins. Then we have that baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 3. Read about that. <clears throat> and I'm going to start with verse 7. Matthew 3, verse 7. And this is John the Baptist preaching. And he says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his, bab to his baptism, he said, Brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. I can just imagine John talking like that, so sorry. 
And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Hmm. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So here we have two more mentions of baptism. A baptism of the Holy Spirit and a baptism of fire. Well, interesting concept. And the, and the verses right after that, he's talking about what? He's talking about the judgment, is he not? He's going to burn up the chaff, separate them out. So we kind of can see what he's talking about with the fire. But what's he talking about with this Holy Spirit baptism? Turn over to Matthew 20. Let's look at another one. Matthew chapter 20 and verse uh, about, about 20 there. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. What a precocious woman. Anyway, I digress. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it's for those whom it is prepared by my Father. Notice this verse. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and those who are great exercise authority them. Yet it is not, shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, we have a baptism he's talking about that he's going to go through. A baptism of suffering. A baptism of death. And he's saying, if you want to be great, you better be willing to be baptized like I've been baptized. So there's another one, right? Another baptism that we read about. And then in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, we read about the baptism of the Great Commission. Going to all the world, making disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That occurred right before he ascended, right? After his death, after his resurrection, before he went back to heaven. All right. So we have all these examples. There's even two more that we don't need to get into, but we read, we talked about 1 Peter 3.20, when Noah baptized into Noah as they came through, came through the flood, and that since baptism now saved us. And, of course, there's another one, baptism of Jesus. You know, Matthew 3.16, when he talks about the water and the spirit when he was baptized. Yes, sir.
Yeah, Kurt saying they had a, r a ritual baptism that they went through constantly. Did you? Yes, that's true. It's called mitzvah. I've forgotten the word, but that's no, that's right. So yeah, they knew about baptism. They knew that it was a cleansing process, of, of, uh, an, ex an example of being, being regenerated, renewed, right? That kind of thing. So they understood that. That's true, very true. Well, we're going through and we're talking about all these different baptisms to show you that, yeah, there, there's some different types of baptisms mentioned in the New Testament. But let's look at something else. Turn over to the book of Ephesians here. And let's go to chapter 4. All right. And let's read a couple verses from Ephesians 4. In fact, we're going to start right at verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering." Bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice what he said, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, okay, one Spirit, and just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Paul, in describing the unity of the Spirit, that they need to walk in unity, they need to be together, not divided, he says there's only one baptism. Hmm. Well, we just talked about possibly eight, six to eight baptisms here we're talking about. Well, if Paul says there's only one, which of these six to eight baptisms is he talking about then? Well, if you think about it, just by the powers of deduction, right, you can kind of rule out all but at least two, right? Because we kind of know what these other baptisms are talking about, right? You know, the baptism of Moses when the Israelites came to the wilderness, yeah, that doesn't apply to me. The baptism of suffering, well, sure, I can understand what he's saying there, but that's suffering. It's not so much... Uh, uh, something that uh, I, I, I think of baptism, you know, as Christians, we're going to suffer. That's a promise, right? You're going to be persecuted. Happens. What is he talking about here in the, in, the, in the context of the body, in the context of the unity of spirit? Well, is it the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Or is it the baptism of the Great Commission? Or could it be perhaps a combination of the two? with the end being one baptism in water and in spirit. Hmm, interesting concepts. Whatever it is, we cannot have two or more baptisms. There's only one. Paul just said it, right? There's only one. Okay. Well, which one is it? I believe it's the baptism of the Great Commission. Reasoning is the following. Matthew 28, it's for all nations. Go out into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit for every person in the world. Commanded by the apostles in the response to the gospel. Remember what was said in Acts 2? What do we do? Peter just said, you crucified the Son of God. What do we do? Repent and be baptized. Everyone in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost. Oh, and by the way, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we'll get into in a second. Try to get into it, put it that way. 
There's only one baptism. Every example of conversion prescribed in detail in the book of Acts, as I've already said, involves a water baptism. So, if there's two baptisms that you're considering, we've got to throw one of them out, right? We can't have them both, right? That is the truth, right? Absolute truth. There's no your truth or your truth. That's the absolute truth. Well, let's look at it. What about this baptism of the Holy Spirit? John promised in Matthew 3 that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit, okay? Jesus actually promised he would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Let's turn over to Acts 1. Read that. See what he says there. Okay. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days of speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This is how Acts began. This is after he's been appearing to the disciples and he's about to ascend. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. They're supposed to stay there, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So here we are. He's about to ascend. It's getting pretty close to Pentecost. And he's telling them, don't leave Jerusalem because you're going to be baptized in the Spirit in just a few days. Okay, we have a promise from Jesus. We have a pretty direct promise, right? He's telling them when it's going to happen. Okay. Well, we also have that proclamation kind of at the conversion of Cornelius. And let's go read that uh, real quick. I want you to see some stuff here. Acts 10, uh, about verse 44. Now, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard his word, heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Now turn over to 11, chapter 11 there. And let's go down to verse 15. And Peter's recounting this experience, and he says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's recounting Acts 1-5. He's telling them this occurred just like it did on us at the beginning. Many scholars will tell you this was several years after Pentecost. Now, I don't know that for sure. Could have been a month after Pentecost, for all I'm concerned. He's saying this happened at the beginning. In other words, it's not something that's happening a lot. H hasn't seen this happen since then, right? Makes sense? Can't you infer that from that phrase? Yeah. <clears throat> this has led to much confusion, right? About what spirit baptism really is. Some say it's an event that occurred only two times. On the apostles on the day of Pentecost and at the conversion of Cornelius in his household. I would say that's true myself. And I would imagine a lot of you would. 
But let's look at some other things here too. Some say it's an event that occurs at every conversion. When a person is saved, they are at that moment baptized with the Holy Spirit. In other words, it occurs to all who become Christians, and there's no, even though there's no miraculous manifestation to be present, it still occurs. Others say it is an event that occurs after conversion, a second work of grace that must be sought out diligently. Many people understand speaking in tongues to be a sign of the fact that they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And some even say it's necessary to be truly saved. Okay. Well, now that we're completely confused on that, let's keep looking. Yeah. We're going to get into that in just a second, so hold that thought. All right. <clears throat> Turn over to Acts 2. And let's read. Let's just go back to Acts 2. I'm trying to do this quickly. Sorry if I'm going fast, but I know we're going to run out of time. I want to read a couple of verses from Acts 2, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and filled the whole room, filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So why they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking, saying they're full of new wine. And I want you to notice these verses. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Notice what Joel prophesied here. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Okay? In the last days. What's the last days? Are we in the last days? I would say yes. We are now waiting for the return of Jesus, right? So we are in the last day. He's poured out his spirit on all flesh. I would say believers, but flesh, yeah. All right? So, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 12. I want to read something from there. And you knew I was going to go to 1 Corinthians 12 if, you don't, if you're talking about the spirit. And as Kurt said, spiritual gifts, you've got to get into 1 Corinthians 12. All right. Beginning of verse 1. <clears throat> Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to, the, to those dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that, you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversities of ministries, 
but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. <clears throat> but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing each one individually as he wills. This is what Kurt was referring to. The Spirit was poured out on people before we had the canon of Scripture for revelation purposes. The will of God had to be revealed. He did it through signs and wonders, preaching. He gave different gifts to different brethren as the Spirit was poured out on them. I could go through a whole study on 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 that talked to describe how the miracles ceased. Those gifts ceased at some point. And I believe that's when we got the canon of Scripture. We didn't need them anymore. But this was done at the beginning. But then I want you to notice verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. The reason I'm reading that is, whether there are miraculous gifts from the spirit or not, we're all baptized in that one body through the spirit. All right? Is that Holy Spirit baptism? Hmm. Interesting. For those who receive the spirit, the spirit empowers whom he wills and delegates gifts to whom he wills. Now, I believe to this day, we have spiritual gifts that are dwelt to us by the Spirit. Not miraculous gifts, but gifts. Just like then, it's one body. And in that body, you have several members. Each member has a certain gift. Some for, I don't know, teaching, some for preaching, some for comforting, some for doing the work, meeting the needs of people. All these things are gifts we have. For all the servants of God, the Spirit serves as the instrumental agent by which God strengthens and blesses those people of his church. The work of the Spirit today continues and will continue till Christ returns in this respect. We don't have the spiritual gifts, just like Kurt was talking about. Those have ceased, but we still have, we don't have the miraculous spiritual gifts, sorry, don't get me wrong, but we have spiritual gifts. We are given. Yes, sir. Good point, good point. We have the gifts. We are given by God. Yes, sir. 
Good points. Very good points, Brother John. Yep, we have a gifts. We are given gifts. And, and we need to cultivate that. That's part of that spiritual growth, right? <laughs> okay, so I'm talking about that. We're talking about the two different baptisms through Holy Spirit and baptism of water. <clears throat> so, what are we talking about here? Is baptism of water something that we could say is one baptism in itself? Or is there something else at work here? And we kind of alluded to this last week. Remember when the Ethiopian eunuch went was preached to, he said, here's water, what hinders me baptized? That's pretty, that's pretty obvious, right? That there was water baptism going on in the first century. Made clear by Peter when he talked about how can we hinder Cornelius from being baptized when the Spirit's been poured out on him and his family. But there is an involvement in the Spirit, just as you were talking about. Turn over to John 3, and let's read it. And most of you probably know this passage, but let's read it again. John 3, verse 1. <clears throat> there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are the teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does he mean by that? Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most surely I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Hmm. Is Jesus talking about two baptisms here? I don't think so. Can you be born two more times? I've heard somebody tell me he's talking about when you're born, that's the water part. And then when you're, when you're saved, that's the spirit part. It makes no sense. Why would he say one has to be born of water and the spirit? You have to be born. Well, obviously you've got to be born. Right? No. This is one baptism. Just like Paul described in Ephesians. Turn over to Titus 3. Let's read that verse again. Titus 3. Verse 5. Actually, let's just start verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. But when the kindness of the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Could it be that what we're talking about here is the working of the Spirit when we're baptized in water? Romans 6 describes that beautifully, does it not? We're buried into his death, buried with him in baptism, into his death, crucified with him, raised in newness of life. That seems to make perfect sense to me. That's the Spirit work renewing the saved brother or sister, the new Christian. In a sense, when 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's reminding everyone that by that one spirit, we are baptized in that one body. It's the work of the spirit. So the baptism of the Great Commission is much more than just an immersion in water. And it's not the water that's doing anything, right? It's that baptism into Christ, baptism into his death, 
I cannot see how Romans 6 could be anything but a baptism in water. It makes perfect sense, right? It involves burial into the death of Christ. It involves being crucified with him. It involves being raised to newness just as Jesus was raised from the dead. It's the picture of what takes place when one's saved. Those that say Holy Spirit baptism, well, it's something that comes around after. It shows what happened later. Well, if that's true, let's just think about that for a second. If it's true that Romans 6 is talking about Holy Spirit baptism, then we have absolutely no description of what water baptism does. None. We can only speculate. What, what's the reason for being baptized in water then? Well, it's, it's the first act of faith. It's, those are just guesses. Nobody really knows. No. Paul's telling us right here in Romans 6 what it's all about. The one baptism involves a cutting away of sins. Colossians 2, a putting on of Christ, Galatians 3, 27. And therefore, we are washed by the Spirit, regenerated by the Spirit. If they're not discussing water baptism, the baptism of the Great Commission, we have no significance for that act, no reason for it. And in the unity of Spirit, where Paul proclaims there's only one baptism, not two, it has to be involving the water and the Spirit. Just like Jesus says there in John 3, right? That helps you. It makes sense, right? So what is Holy Spirit baptism? Well, we see the outward manifestation of the Spirit falling on the apostles at Pentecost. We see it on Cornelius. And so in that respect, I've always said there's really only two times where we have the Holy Spirit baptism. But what else do we read in Acts 2? Repent and be baptized for the mission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's, I think, where we're talking about what happens at baptism. Through the working of the Spirit, we receive that gift of the Spirit. I'm not going to say that's Holy Spirit baptism right out, although perhaps that's what it is. Perhaps it's when Joel prophesied about the Spirit being poured out on all Christians at the beginning. That has continued to now. Perhaps that's what we're talking about there. Could be. Kurt.
All right. Yeah, they, it's very it's very hard to understand all of it. What what you're saying is that we don't have Holy Spirit baptism today. Then it ended after the Spirit, and and the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. That is, I, I agree with that's very true. Uh, and you're right. I think the Holy Spirit baptism occurred really only on two occasions, really outwardly. But that we do receive a gift when we are baptized of the Holy Spirit. Whether that's Holy Spirit baptism or not, perhaps, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. We could discuss this all day about that. Point being is, Paul said there's one baptism. For someone to say that we are saved by Holy Spirit baptism, cannot, they cannot account for water baptism if they say that. Right? Can't do it. Can't have two baptisms. You only got one. In water baptism, we are saved. We are, uh, our sins are washed away. We have a rebirth. We're buried in his death, crucified with him. We have that spiritual circumcision according to Colossians 2. We're washed and regenerated, Titus 2, Titus 3. And 1 Peter 3, it's like Noah, through the blood, we're saved. Okay, I knew this was going to run over, and probably you're not any better off than you were when we started, I'm sure. But just keep in mind, when you hear somebody say we're saved by the Holy Spirit baptism, then you say, well, what about Ephesians 4 where Paul says there's one baptism? Can't be two. All right? Thank you for being